Well, happy Good Friday. Um, I'm not sure what you respond to with that, but uh, there you are. It's, where else would you be today? It's, it's fantastic to gather, and it's fantastic to do it not on Zoom. So uh, it's wonderful to actually be in person together. I want to deal with some puzzling contradictions today. Um, and so it's going to be uh, somewhat challenging to wrestle with these things. I'm going to pray for God to help us. Uh, you may not be convinced there is a God, but uh, why don't you uh, listen in as we deal with these things together. But let me pray for us on our behalf. Our great God, we do ask, please, that you might use this time to help us understand what you have done in history past and what you do each and every day, what you do among us even now. Please give us a, a deep sense of the truth of reality, of life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about some of the puzzling contradictions of Good Friday. Good Friday is a very puzzling time with various contradictions. One of them is just the very first one that I think you might have noticed. I'm not sure if you picked this up, but the church sign out the front has the uh, Live Again uh, little statement. And now, I, I don't know how you react, but I grew up in a world where I didn't go to church. I was very much more involved in kind of the, the world around and so on. And when I, if for me to see a sign in the front of a church that says, come to find life here, come to church to live again, I'd be shaking my head thinking that's weird. You don't go to church to find life, you, you go to the beach to find life. You drive past the cricket to the beach to find life. You, uh, you, you, you go to the festival to find life. Do you know? You go to the party to find life. You, you don't go to the church to find life, surely. It's a bit like this. I was at the pool the other day at Gosford and um, I saw this sign and I thought, that's exactly it. You know when you go to the pool to have fun and then you get hit with this? No diving, no smoking, no rowing, no bombing. They're all the reasons that make a pool fun and you're not allowed to do it. But here you go. I think we in our community think that that sign sits over church. So you come into church and it's the no life place, do you know? You go elsewhere if you really want to have life. Isn't that right? Who would come to church to find life? Am I right? Yes. Here's the contradiction. Millions of people over many centuries have come to Jesus and the Christian faith and found what they'd never found elsewhere. Freedom, meaning, purpose, life. They've been captivated. The exact opposite of what you see in popular culture about how you would imagine a church to be. And they gathered to celebrate that life. It's like, how, how is that so? How could it be that church is the place where you'd find life? The day that today celebrates is a contradiction, isn't it? Today is the day we celebrate a person's death, a gruesome death. Crucifixion is one of the most gruesome deaths ever imagined. A man is nailed to a tree, a, a bunch of timber, hoisted up and left just to die. A gruesome, horrendous death, but we come to celebrate that day. I don't know of any other religion where the religious leader's death is celebrated. I mean, educate me later, but I don't know anyone. You, you, a group might remember their founder's death with some sadness because his ministry was finished, his teaching ministry was finished and so on. But Christians gather to celebrate his death and we call it Good Friday. What a wonder. How is that so? A gruesome death we celebrate. You know, this same contradiction, this same oddity is actually in the text 
that Sung read for us. If you've got your Bible or that little sheet of paper, we want you to look at the text yourself. This is from an ancient eyewitness account of the person of Jesus. We are dealing with history in this context and we're actually able to get access to the very words of Jesus and he says these things for us in verse 33, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Now, what's clear there is whatever being lifted up means it's something powerful. It'll draw people everywhere to Him. There'll be a beauty and attractiveness about this being lifted up. Now, what is this lifted up? Well, verse 34 tells you. John tells us that Jesus said this to show the kind of death He was going to die. What is that? His his being lifted up on a cross, being crucified, will have such compelling beauty about it that it will draw all people to Jesus. Do you see the series of contradictions, the kind of oddities, the paradoxes, the, you come to church to find life? I thought you'd go elsewhere to get that. You come here to lose it, don't you? But no, but people, millions of people have testified to the truth of life. The day we celebrate is a day of gruesome death and yet we call it Good Friday. Jesus himself says that this is the hour that he will draw, so attractive that he will draw all of humanity to himself. Now how is all of this so? How does any of it make sense? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons why. The first is because it achieves something, this being lifted up, And the second is because it shows something. Let me give you the first. It achieves something. Now, it achieves a number of things. I'm going to actually look at that text again and see what Jesus himself says of this event and what it's about, what it achieves. And I'm going to start in a place that's kind of later in what he teaches. It's a little bit of another thought that he adds there. But if you look there in verse uh, 31, Jesus gives this explanation about what he will achieve when he is lifted up. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. The hour is a way of talking about him being lifted up and being lifted up is talking about his death and he's saying that event, when he's lifted up and dies, he will cast out, drive out the prince of this world. Who is the prince of this world? It's Satan. It's a reference in the Jewish world to Uh, the demonic power called Satan. Now, I start there because I actually want to highlight for us this morning, I want to go straight to it, that what we're talking about this morning is fundamentally a spiritual thing. Easter isn't about teaching you to be more respectable. Easter isn't about being more inspired to be more selfless. It's not about being more religious and more moral. It has implications in our lives for some of these things, but that's not what it's about. And it's a great tragedy that many places will simply talk about the Jesus event as somehow simply being a good man who gives up his life that you might be inspired to be different. No, it's a deeply spiritual thing. It's an event where Satan is dealt with. Now, our culture doesn't talk much about this kind of demonic dimension to life which is itself of course part of the problem but the Bible takes that dimension deeply seriously as many other cultures do many cultures apart from the western world that we're in 
recognize the profound reality of the demonic world, the seriousness of it. They're very close to it. We've spent most of our history trying to deny it and ignore it, which is part of the power of the demonic world. But it's real and it's partly the thing that explains evil in our world. You see, why of all creatures, why of all animals are humans like we are? Well, one of the answers the Bible gives is because we're enslaved, we're captured by a demonic power, and you see that burst forth in real oppressive evil that's been part of our history as humanity. And what Jesus comes to do and achieve in his being lifted up is liberation. It's casting out this power who has taken us captive. What Easter is about is a deeply spiritual thing. There's more to be said there, but let's rush on. Because the engine that drives that liberation is spoken about earlier. Jesus actually says very much earlier in this moment of talking... Uh, of the thing that actually gives power to it all. And it's there in verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And what Jesus here is doing is picking up a proverb or a saying from the ancient world. It's a, 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 you know, unless a grain of the seed falls and dies in the ground, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces a crop. Um, and for the world that he was speaking into, it was a very obvious little picture. Uh, and it would have been one of their sayings, quite possibly. The closest we, of course, get to the farming world is that kid's experiment, which comes home with the cotton wool in the cup and you stick the seed in it. So if you've seen that, you know what Jesus is talking about. This seed that goes in, dies, disintegrates, is deconstructed, ceases to be, in a sense, what it was, gives up its life to create a stalk with many seeds, with much grain. It produces life. And Jesus gives this principle and he applies it to his followers. It's actually verse 25 and 26, something that we need to learn from, but he applies it first and foremost to himself. In the first instance, he's using it to explain what's happening to him, what his death will be about, why it is that he must be lifted up on a cross. His death has a purpose, a reason, and that reason is to bring life to bring a harvest to many others, to bring them to life. Now, how? How is it that this one man's death can produce life for others? I mean, people die all the time and nothing comes from it except grief. How is it that this man's death will do something different? Well, he gives some insight into it a little later when he says in verse 27, so follow through what Jesus says there, Verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour, this moment of being lifted up on the cross. And the key there is in the word troubled. My soul is troubled, save me from this hour. It's a reference to his death, the death that he doesn't want to go to. I mean, no one wants to go to their death particularly. But Jesus uses the word there, the word troubled, which is a very intense word. 
It's a strong word that could be translated as, my soul is horrified. My soul is in agitation, it's in turmoil. It could even mean revulsion. It's a very strong word. There's something about his death that comes, that's coming, that horrifies him. It goes way beyond the normal fear and uncertainty that people would have about death. So what is it? What is it about his death that, that he must go to, that unless he goes to it, life won't come to others? What is it about his death that causes him such distress? Well, there are many other places in the Bible that explain it. In fact, it's so much at the heart of what Christianity is about, this act of Jesus dying, that the Bible is full of statements to give us insight into it. You can go to a place, a verse I've actually put up for us, from a, the book, a book called Galatians, which says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, in our place. The curse of the law. It's the judgment of God upon sin. And Christ redeemed us, rescued us from that judgment by taking the curse upon himself in our place. This takes us to the heart of the very heart of what Christianity is all about. This is another place in the Bible, many places like this talk about this, uh, way back in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, we had it read for us earlier, that the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all, that the judgment that was ours was upon Him. He took our curse in our place. And Jesus knew that when He was lifted up on a cross, in that hour, when He died... He would fall into the ground, into the judgment of God. And the thought of that experience horrified him, terrified him, left him deeply disturbed. And when he fell into the ground for the judgment of God in death, he knew it wasn't judgment for himself, he was innocent, he knew it was judgment that he took for others, as the curse for others was laid upon him. What's happening? Let me explain it using robes. Those things that you might put over yourself, robes. Imagine your life is like a robe, a cloak. And the colour of your cloak represents your inner spiritual state before God. And I'd suggest to you, it's therefore filthy. Mine is. Because every lie is another splatter of dirt. Every stretching of the truth to advantage yourself adds another piece of filth to that robe. Every act of advancing me and my advantage over others is another piece of dirt. Every jealous word, every jealous thought, every act of hatred or hurt for another is another piece of dirt. Every failure to love like I ought to love is another stain. And there's a life's accumulation of these. But it gets worse. 
every time I've used God for my own ends, every time I've ignored him and disobeyed him and rebelled against him and paid him the heed that he, not paid him the heed that he's not given him the thanks that he's owed or not honoured him as the God that, every time I've done that, it actually brings from within a stain that is corrupting and polluting the whole robe. So it ends up dark. Our robe is filthy. Jesus, his robe is pure white. He committed no sin, no deceit was in his mouth. 1 Peter chapter 2. But on the cross, the day when he was lifted up as a condemned criminal in our eyes, he was lifted up as a condemned criminal in the spiritual realm. And he was lifted up like that because he took on your robe and my robe. He bore the curse that my life deserves and he took it upon himself. It killed him, my life, when it was found on him. Do you know the Bible is full of this insight, this sense of what was happening because it's so much the heart of the Christian faith that um, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, to pay for others. He came to give up his life for his sheep. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for others. It's why on the cross, when he cries out, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a cry of one who has taken on my robe and is suffering the fate that my robe brings. The rejection, the ju just judgment, the, 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 the curse of God. And he endured that in my place. And here he was some days before that event. My soul is terrified. My soul is horrified at the thought of this hour to come. Father, save me from wearing this robe. Friends, the moment of death is deeply serious for the unforgiven person. What happens after death for the person who's unforgiven? They wake up after death and it's dark. Where am I? There's no light. There's no fun. There's no warmth. This is not what I was told. I was told by those people who sell crystals that I'd go into a corridor to be full of light and wonderful warmth. It's dark. Where am I? I'm alone. Where's my family? Where are my friends? Where am I? God, where am I? And a voice comes and says, you are cut off. You paid little heed to me in your life. You wanted life without me. You wanted to live your own way without reference to me as your God. You now have what you want forever. Alone. In the dark. Eternally under judgment. Friends, I'm conscious that a moment's reflection on this is terrifying, isn't it? But that's exactly why Jesus was horrified. The thought of taking on the consequences of wearing my life 
brought him deep anguish because he knew exactly what it meant. He wasn't raised in the kind of spiritualism of modern world that just kept telling us beautiful fairy stories. Now, you might find yourself wondering, how can this be? I think there are two ways to see the lie of the popular mind that says all will be light and life. One is to look, take an honest look at your robe, at your cloak, at your life. You take an honest look there and you'll see it does not deserve to enter into the presence of God. But that's hard to do. It's hard to own the reality of what I'm actually like. Another way to do it, though, is to look at Jesus. And I think this was the thing that particularly spun me. When I looked at the person of Jesus and I saw how he felt as he faced the possibility of having Andrew Hurd's life enthroning, covering him. As soon as I saw what he saw, it would be like to stand before God with my life. It woke me up. It terrified him. He was horrified at the consequences. Father, save me from this hour. Friends, this is massive. This is deeply serious. We don't feel now what all of that is like, though some of you do, some of you have a sense of it. But it is fast approaching the day when you will experience this. And it will be just. It will be God's righteous response. Jesus fell into that. Into the judgment of God. But here's the thing. Look at the end of that statement. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. My soul is troubled. I'm in deep anguish about taking the robes of others to bring them forgiveness. Father, save me from this hour. But he says, for this very reason I came. To give my life as a ransom for many. That my dying might be life to others. It's, that's the reason I came. And the great beauty of this, friends is that having taken my robe from me, he gives me his robe back. I take on the righteousness of Christ. My robe to him, he dies. His robe to me, I live. Forgiven, reconciled, restored. I'm now seen by God as clean and purified and cleansed and forgiven. If you accept the gift of his death on your behalf. If you recognise the seriousness of sin and your need for forgiveness. If you cry out to him, Lord, take my robe upon your, you. Give me your robe. He is the gracious and loving God. And he will answer that prayer. And give you the life that we so desperately need. Because... He said on that day, it's the very reason I've come to give you life. That I might die for my sheep, that I might judge Satan, that I might cast him out, that I might liberate sinners, that I might bring life to the world. Can I underline this? Christianity can say, come 
and live again. I think it's the only group on the planet that can say that and really mean it. You won't get life anywhere else. Not like you'll get it in Jesus. Because Christianity, the person of Jesus, isn't about crushing you with religious rules. He's not about bringing you to some kind of middle-class respectability. That's not what Jesus came to give. He went to the cross for you. God sent His Son for you to take your guilt in your place so that you can be forgiven, restored into relationship with God, a new person, born again, free. Now that has implications, it'll mean you'll live a new life. But it's a life that actually brings light and health and meaning and purpose and greatness and goodness. That's why Christians sing. That's why we're one of the only religions that get together to sing. Not chant, but celebrate in song the goodness of the gift we've received. That's why Friday of Easter is called Good Friday. You see, here is why that lifting up of Jesus is so glorious. It's because it achieves something. But it's a thing that will draw people to Jesus because it shows something. You know, the death of Jesus is ugly and horrible and gruesome. But there's a deep beauty to that death. It's inherently attractive and compelling and it draws people. Let me illustrate this by giving you a story of another person's sacrifice. Not all death is beautiful and glorious, but some kinds of deaths are. In 2006, there was a small plane uh, with uh, a number of people on it getting ready to skydive for the first time. They were all getting set to do this and weren't all finished in their parachutes and so on, but they, the plane they were in suffered a catastrophic engine failure and crashed. No one was able to get out of the plane. Everybody died in the plane except for one young woman. She survived because the dive instructor strapped her to himself and as the plane went down, cradled her head into the nook of his neck and said and talked to her and, and explained what was happening and calmed her and held her close so that when the plane crashed he spun his body to take the impact he died she lived the only one her father said this he's a hero there's no other way to describe it. It was utterly amazing. Her sister said this, there's nothing I can't even put into words, but the only thing I can think of saying is, thank you so much. Do you see there's a beauty to some kinds of death? That a man would do that for another. The Lord Jesus did that for us in the most monumental way. He put his body between us and the righteous judgment we deserved and took it in our place. 
You say, I hate to say this, but if you take that picture of that young man who gave his life and multiply it, it's so crass to say this, multiply that many times over. And you'll get some sense of what Jesus has done for us. It's so much more than what that man done because um, uh, Jesus had his whole life to think on the cost that he would pay to save us. He knew that when he would be lifted up, he would stand between us and judgment and take the curse that we deserve in our place so that we don't have to. He, would, he knew that he would hold us close and to die in our place for us. He had his whole life to reflect on that. The cross was a shadow that hung over everything for him. So it wasn't just the Garden of Gethsemane the night before. What this tells us is the week before and the months before and the years before, he knew where he was going and yet he determinedly took himself to that place because, Father, it's for this very hour I've come. Though it grieved him and distressed him. It wasn't a spontaneous act on the moment. And it wasn't merely a physical loss that Jesus endured. It was a spiritual one. He faced the spiritual judgment of sin upon his life. And the very thought of it horrified him. Father, save me from this. But he turned again and at the last moment spun his body so that he took the, the, the guilt and the curse that we endured. He took it upon himself to save you. To save me. To give me life. Every one of us who turns back to him, he did it for you. The word hero doesn't even come close. And he didn't do it for a lovely young woman. He did it for people with filthy robes. What love is this? That God didn't do this while we loved him, but that he chose to love us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. Because that gruesome death on the cross was an experience of such sacrificial glory and greatness and wonder that the world has been captured by it for 2,000 years. Within a very short time, the news of this death spread across the Mediterranean world. People flocked to be brought to this life. And here we are on the other side of the planet, captured by this death. You see, no one flocks to a religion to get crushed by religious rules. I mean, some people go there because they're masochists and they have terror, but no one flocks to that. But the death of Jesus on a cross causes people to flood to him, to be drawn, not because it's their last resort, but because of the love that's displayed there that's so overwhelming and wonderful. The day when God was lifted up to pay our debt, to put his body between us and the judgment we deserve. A day he did that because of the love of his Father and the love that he has for you. Now that's compelling. All I can think to say is, thank you. Now here's the thing though. If you aren't drawn in some small way to Jesus being lifted up on the cross and the wonder of it, you've not understood what happened. You've not understood what robe you carry. There are things that are profoundly missing. 
and it will mean you suffer loss. You will suffer the loss of everything and you will find yourself alone in the dark when you don't need to. When God has so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And find that you can live again. A life that starts now with new insight, with the lights on, with meaning and purpose, but will go through for forever. You'll find the true you when you find the life that God brings you. Let me finish. A church that has out, out the front, live again, it makes perfect sense when you understand the biblical message of Jesus. We're the only ones who can offer that because we represent a God who has done so much. Will you come back? If you're here today and you don't know this love and you've not entered back into a relationship with God, can I encourage you today to make today the day that you, you throw yourself on the mercy of God, you receive Jesus' death on your behalf, 